Hello and welcome to the Wall Street Bulls and Bears Main Street Hopes and Fears podcast. We interview top finance and business professionals who share their unique insights and experiences. We also look at the impact on Main Street and invite them and you to connect the dots. My name is Shanaz Joan Parsan. I'm your host, but we do have other hosts from time to time. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Wall Street Bulls and Bears podcast. We're joined by John Graham. John is the author of Charlotte's War, May 2023, a sweeping and ambitious historical novel set amidst the geopolitics of Vietnam era international tension. He's also served as an officer in the US Navy, the UDT SEAL teams for nine years for an active duty. He was a founding director and an advisory board member of the University of California Irvine Center for Citizen Peacebuilding during the last two decades, a Berkeley PhD. Graham is an author and professor emeritus of international business at UCI. For four decades, he has provided expert advice and training on international negotiations to executive groups at 1,500 companies here and abroad and government organizations, including the U.S. Institute for Peace. Graham has published more than 60 articles in journals such as the Harvard Business Review, Harvard Law School's Negotiation Journal, the Journal of Marketing and Marketing Science, Management Science, I beg your pardon. His several books with partners have all been bestsellers on their respective topics, International Marketing, the most popular book in the world on the topic that has been translated into seven languages. Welcome, John. That's quite a resume. Thank you for going through all that. I appreciate it. But, you must, uh, I'm you happy must, to be here. No, we're uh, you know delighted um, to uh, speak with you. Um, uh, tell us about the key themes uh, and takeaways of Charlotte's War and how your firsthand experience in international negotiations informed the rich elements, uh, the rich historical elements in that novel. Uh, thanks. Actually, I guess you can see my background there. That's uh, world peace uh, through uh, world trade. That was an eight cent stamp. I can move a little bit. The U.S. postage stamp published in 1959. And one of the themes of the book is that uh, trade is really important for keeping peace between countries. Um, the title is Charlotte's War, but uh, uh, Part of the argument in the book is building peace through trade. It's too bad we didn't do that when we had the chance uh, with Vietnam. Um, we had several opportunities, but we didn't take them. And we chose uh, to fight instead, which ended up being a bad decision for millions of people. Mm -hmm. All right, but uh, tell us about uh, the discrepancies in how American men and women view firearms, leadership, and peace tying back to, uh, uh, you know, not just uh, war in Vietnam, but I guess um, in Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, um, if you can, like, you know, expand on this. Okay, so remind me to get back to Ukraine um, at the end. It's Charlotte's War. So uh, it's a book about her war against war and trying to make peace. And part of the problem, or there are four, five main characters in the book. Charlotte is fictional. 
Um, her son, Jack, is fictional, and he's going off to war. Um, Henry Kissinger and Ho Chi Minh are both uh, real characters. And then the fifth character is television, because television played such an important role in that time period. And when I look at the way men and women today think about firearms, um, we spent a lot of time in the book talking about that, particularly the influence uh, of television uh, and the Old West and uh, all that, which, you know, in the when I was growing up, um, there were 75 Westerns on television, all involving six shooters. And we used to sing the songs. I can still sing some of the songs, Davy Crockett, Davy Crockett, you want to hear my singing. <laughs> but the point is, um, as a boy growing up, we spent a lot of time in front of the tube uh, watching our heroes. We also spent time uh, watching our heroes in sports and in our parents who maybe had fought in World War II. But uh, we developed this uh, strong uh, appreciation for guns. And the consequence of that now is we have 20% um, more guns in this country than we have people. We have about, uh, I don't know, uh, 330 million people and you know about 370 million guns. And most of those are owned by men. Um, if you look at the murders that are committed uh, uh, within the country, about 80% of those are committed by men. Women are committing 20%. But uh, men are really the violent gender, if you want to talk about it that way. And uh, so that makes uh, the United States uh, not only the most bellicose and secure for that matter, if you look at our military spending, which is a hot topic today that they're talking about um, in the Oval Office, I suppose, uh, our military spending um, this year is going to be about uh, $80 billion, that's three times what the Chinese are spending. And so one way to look at these expenditures on, on firearms and military expenditures is that we're the most secure country in the world. But the other thing that that demonstrates, all this ownership of weapons and weaponry demonstrates a fear. And so in some senses, we're the most insecure people on the planet reflected in all these purchases. And most of these purchases are driven by men, um, the men in government and uh, men, men in homes all over the country. So how does that relate? And so that's one of the themes. Uh, Charlotte is a peacemaker. The three men, important men in her life, all go off to war. And uh, men and women feel differently about their sons. Um, for many, it's okay for men to die in war. It's an honorable death. But for women, I don't think they see it that way. Uh, what's happening in Ukraine and um, Russia right now, I don't have a good answer. I just attended a peace conference, a conference on peace at Stanford last week, and all the speakers were asked the same question. And there's just no good answer. Um, Putin, um, we had a chance to trade with Putin in uh in the early 2000s, he asked to become a member of the European Union, and uh, people laughed at him. And things went downhill after that. And now we have a Putin who's really um, not in his right mind. Um, in this century, 
you uh, nobody in their right mind invades another country uh, because uh, that just doesn't work. He probably thought it was going to be a whole lot easier too. So like, you know, um, I guess he didn't expect the resistance. Of course, I'm not defending him at all, but like, uh, I'm just thinking he didn't think it, uh, he was going to uh, face what he's facing or it was going to be dragged on this long, I think. Yeah, all he had to do um, to be dissuaded of this thinking was read the book 1776. I recommend it. It's a wonderful book. It's about George Washington um, with a ragtag army of colonials uh, defeating the greatest military the world had ever seen, the British Navy and Army uh, in the Revolutionary War. And that's, you know, a classic example of the difficulty of invading another country. We ran into a similar consequence uh, by trying to uh, in a, in a sense, invading, sending our troops into Vietnam. That did not work. The most powerful country in the world and uh, the consequences were not good from that decision. No, thank you so much, John. I'm gonna uh, go back just because he said some startling statistics that I did not know about the number of guns. Do you know how many of those guns happen to be semi-automatic or so, sort of weapons of war, if you will, the guns? The, uh, um, don't quote me on this. Okay. <laughs> I, no I think the number I think the number is 16 million AR15s in the country. Okay. 16 million. Uh, most of the gun homicides involve handguns. Um, about two thirds of them in in the last year. Uh, but the uh, assault weapons are are made for the battlefield, and there's no reason that they should be in anybody's home. Um, but anyway, that's a whole other issue. No, absolutely. I do. I do in the book talk about the lethal uh, of the M16, or it's the same thing, and they're really intended to make hamburger out of humans. They aren't intended as self defense. And so, what's going on in these schools is horrific. Um, and I'm going to say it twice it's plain horrific. And uh, we ought to be doing something about that. But uh, the guns are so attractive. You know, it's all wrapped up in our masculinity. And uh, it's a sad situation in this country. We're Canadians, so we have a very different view on uh, guns. We don't experience uh, that uh, same uh, issue that uh, we've seen uh, to our uh, best friends and neighbors um, in the United States. So it's very difficult to understand. I've lived and worked in uh, the United States, but it's still incredibly difficult to understand and reconcile, um, you know, how people can uh, view, um, uh, you know, sensible legislation and not support it when they're seeing all these innocent children being murdered. I just don't understand. It's it's incredible. Well, you, you bring up a very important point in this whole debate about guns in this country. What's going on in other countries is hardly mentioned at all. And when you look at gun ownership in other countries and the, the uh, murders per 100,000 in Canada, Canada actually has a lot of guns compared to other countries. 35, um, they're about 35 for every 100 people. But uh, in the European countries, the main ones, they have fewer guns than that. And the we have about, uh, more than seven 
uh, murders a year right now um, using guns and, and other means. But these other countries are, you know, about 1.1, 1.2 compared to seven. Uh, in fact, the only country that's a major country that's worse than us is Russia. What a surprise. Yeah, but uh, we, I think we really need to look at the models of how other countries are handling gun ownership and handling uh, personal security because we're doing a really bad job of it. Thank you. Let's talk about the influence and legacy of Henry Kissinger's career and how it connects to war crimes. Why did he fail so often in negotiations surrounding Vietnam and what were his strengths and flaws in your opinion? Yeah, so Kissinger won the Nobel Prize along with Lee Duc Tho um, in 1973 for ending the Vietnam War. Uh, it, that's really ironic because uh, Kissinger uh, had, is not a good negotiator. He was a bad negotiator, particularly in, in uh, Vietnam. Uh, the negotiations, um, he got involved in them uh, after Kennedy was assassinated and Johnson became president. He was asked to go uh, to Vietnam to meet with the Vietnam, South Vietnamese leaders and our military leaders and assess the situation. And after uh, talking to all these folks, he concluded we needed to use more force, particularly in attacks in Laos and Cambodia. That was in uh, 65. In 67, he tried second track negotiations. There was a Frenchman that had been a neighbor of Ho Chi Minh who offered to pass uh, information directly and act as an interme intermediary and Kissinger uh, got Johnson's permission to do that. Um, and he worked on it for about two months, but finally Johnson gave up and said, you know, this is ridiculous. And he stopped that second track. So that's another example of Kissinger failing um, in, in his efforts. Uh, in 68, uh, that's a really sad story because the Johnson administration right before the election had decided to settle uh, but the Nixon administration interfered in probably a tre treasonous way. It's not clear how much Kissinger was involved in the uh, treasonous acts, but uh, uh, he was feeding uh, the Nixon administration information at the time. And that caused a four-year delay in peace. Um, Nixon won, of course, and uh, then we have four more years of failed negotiations. Uh, Nixon, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Kissinger started another informal negotiation while there, the formal negotiations were going on in Paris. He was sneaking around safe houses in Paris, meeting with Lee Ducteau. Uh, Kissinger, one of the big problems as a negotiator is he always liked secrecy. Um, and, uh, and he was famous for lying. Uh, the Vietnamese knew that he and Nixon were both uh, terrible liars. And uh, there's even a, a, I'm gonna read if you don't mind a quote. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, when Nixon was found out by the Johnson administration that he was trying to foul the negotiations in 1968, uh, and they had uh, Nixon on tape doing this, uh, he called um, Johnson two days before the, on the Sunday before the Tuesday election. And here's what he told Johnson. And I got to put on my glasses to read this. No worries. So. No worries. 
Excuse me for just a second. Okay, so this is a telephone call. It's recorded. And um, yeah, I don't have it in the notes. Nixon invoked. Um, oh, I do have it. Sorry. It's okay. Here's what Nixon said uh, to Johnson. My God, I would never do anything to encourage Saigon not to come to the table. Good God, we want them over here in Paris, over there in Paris. We've got to get them to Paris or we won't have the peace. So Nixon, in two sentences, invoked the word of God twice, denying that he was uh, acting treasonously. And that's an example of Nixon. Nixon is famous for being one of the biggest liars um, in, in political history uh, until uh, Trump walked up to the podium, so to speak. But uh, then getting back to Kissinger and Lee Ducktail, they started to talk two years before the 72 election and the talking went back and forth. Uh, Kissinger complained about uh, Lee Ducktail. He said, the thing I don't like about the Vietnamese is what they say in secret is the same as what they say in the public, which gives you some idea of how Kissinger was lying to the public about what was going on. Um, but uh, right before the election, Kissinger kind of took things into his own hands and announced pieces at hand, literally. And uh, the agreement he had with Lee Ducktail right before the election fell apart right after the election. And uh, Nixon bombed Hanoi and Haiphong Harbor again. And uh, some analyst, John Negroponte, is a, uh, was an analyst, said we bombed them into submission. Um, the peace agreement was signed uh, early in, two uh, in uh, 1973. And uh, then the Vietnamese took over in 1975. The North Vietnamese took over the entire country in 75. Nixon had promised that he would defend the South Vietnam against such an attack, but uh, Nixon wasn't in office in 75. So that didn't happen. So that's kind of the, a quick story, a quick summary of Kissinger fumbling several times in his negotiations. Um, and, uh, the, uh, and these fumbles extended the war dramatically. Thank you so much. Um, tell us how diversity plays a key role in peace building within nations, organizations, and communities. What can uh, all of us learn? Yeah, so that's really what the stamp is saying behind me. But um, trade works in three ways. Uh, first of all, it gets people from different countries working together and talking together. And that builds international understandings. Um, because we have such a good relationship with Canada, for example, a good trade relationship, we understand each other pretty well, although we still make mistakes. But this interaction uh, helps people understand each other's culture uh, and background and such. So that's one way. The second way is international trade or trade within countries builds interdependence. And so, it's, for example, there's a lot of talk now about how China is going to attack Taiwan and we're going to have a war with China. That's never going to happen. None of the three countries can afford that war. If China attacked Taiwan, trade would stop, and within six months, China would be in chaos. So that war is never going to happen because, the of the, because of the interdependence of the two countries. And then the third thing that trade gives us 
and is this blessed diversity which creates new ideas um, and passes new ideas along. So one example, of course, is who invented gunpowder? Well, that was the Chinese. And that passed along the Silk Road over to Europe, and we're still using gunpowder today, unfortunately. But the point is international trade really promotes inventive thinking. It puts more ideas on the table and uh, for us to choose from. And uh, that's so important um, in international relations. And it's really uh, dominant. There's another excellent book I'll recommend, Stephen Pinker's book called uh, The Better uh, Angels of Our Nature. And in that book, he says there are four reasons why the world is so peaceful right now. And in fact, it is, if you look at the numbers, we're still a very peaceful planet. I know that's hard to think about, but if you look at the numbers, that's the truth. Um, Pinker describes, well, let me go a little bit further on that. If you count the numbers of people that have killed other people, about 99.99% have never killed anybody. Um, so it's normal human behavior not to kill. It's normal human behavior to collaborate. And uh, so uh, Pinker describes four reasons. One of these you'll really like why we have such uh, uh, why we have so much peace at this point in history. One is the rule of reason. Uh, people pay attention to what's going on. We have more information. And so we know, for example, uh, if Japan had the internet back in World War II, they would have never attacked the United States because they would have understood the United States better. Um, this, the second uh, uh, thing that, that he mentions is rule of law. And so we have laws, for example, war crime laws that are being violated all the time in, in Ukraine by the Russians. But we have laws and people tend to obey laws. The third reason he mentions is international trade. So, of course, I love that. But the fourth reason he describes and provides empirical data for is that when women are in power, we have more peace. When women have political power. So I'm really hoping you guys take over this next election, uh, if not at the polls, even in office, because women won't put up with the bellicosity of uh, American men. And uh, that's really what we need. So I'm, I have high hopes uh, for you guys um, in the coming election. Thank you so much, John. What can you tell us uh, detailed accounts of the Vietnam War, including policy and insights and the exploration of lie, the lie mask and other illegal orders? Yeah, so for me, um, uh, a very interesting experience I had. I was on my way to the Philippines um, in 1972. I was a naval officer. I was never involved in the war. I was a bench setter in Subic Bay in the Philippines. But on my way there, I was reading the Pentagon Papers. They had just been published in book form in 1972. And uh, the thing that shocked me, at that point in time, I was 25 years old. I had been a fraternity boy in college. I think I did more drinking than studying. And it never occurred to me that my government could lie to me. Now, I know that sounds silly now, but the Pentagon Papers pointed out that uh, 
five presidents in a row had made big mistakes and had lied about uh, what was happening in Vietnam. Kennedy, the guy we all loved, lied about what his troops were doing in Vietnam. They're supposed to be there for training, and he insisted they were when they were not. Uh, the worst lie was um, uh, President Johnson. He justified sending a half a million troops, ultimately, to Vietnam to fight the North Vietnamese uh, uh, based on an incident in the Gulf of Tonkin. It was called the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident. Um, and he described it on television in all our living rooms that the destroyer the, named the Maddox was attacked by Vietnamese gunboats, gunboats. And he used that to justify escalating the war dramatically particularly with American boys going there. And uh, the Pentagon Papers points out that actually the Maddox had shot at the gunboats first. So Johnson was lying about it. Nixon and Kissinger lied a lot about what was going on uh, in Vietnam, particularly the most, uh, the most egregious lies were about um, it, it, uh, denying the fact that we were dropping bombs in new countries which we agreed not to do. So that's a little bit about the history of lying and the mistakes uh, we were making. Uh, if I go to Ukraine and Russia, it's really hard to sort out what's going on there because the Russians are saying one thing and the Ukrainians are another and everybody's got an interest in uh, manipulating the public and the voters in the United States for that matter. But uh, it's very common. One of the things, one of the benefits of having television reporting with respect to Vietnam is it's hard to lie, harder to lie on television. And uh, one of the analyses I did as a negotiations expert is I took a look at the Kennedy-Nixon debates. And uh, you can see that uh, Nixon is lying. Uh, he really gives some tells for lying about uh, things that Kennedy is saying. It's kind of interesting to watch the detail, but I detail that analysis in Charlotte's War as well. Thank you so much. Uh, I think uh, with uh, AI out now, uh, it's there's going to be so uh, much information um, and uh, without regulation, um, even for educated and informed people, it's going to make um, figuring out what's true and untrue that much more difficult. So the days of television is one thing, then came along the internet, and now we're battling AI. It's going to be exponential for the much less informed to, um, they will feed into what they want to believe, um, you know, um, despite you know, uh, facts or, uh, you know, looking deeper for facts. So it's going to be interesting times for that, for sure. Yeah, if we go back to, if we go back to Charlotte real quick in the book, uh, the problem she has with her kids is they're watching television and she had never watched TV. She had only watched radio. So there was a battle between the radio generation and the television generation. And now you're right. We It was the TV generation versus the internet generation. And now we've got uh, AI coming at us. I um, I think there's going to be a bunch of good things from that, but the dangers are there, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us what um, you meant by the phrase, the primordial persuasion was punishment. The first sophistication was exchange. 
Yeah, that's really my mantra these days. Um, the primordial persuasion was punishment. Basically, humans, as we evolved on the uh, southwestern African plain, um, we used punishment to get our way. You know, the old, the classic pictures, the caveman hitting the woman, the cave woman on the head with a club. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, if we want to persuade somebody, we did it through bludgeons and spears and things like that. And I think we're over that. I think once Putin is defeated or eliminated or whatever is going to happen, we're going to realize that the key uh, quality of humans is exchange. We exchange things. We exchange things in all aspects of life, and that builds relationships and causes creativity. And so that's what I mean by the first sophistication was exchange. And again, I've got the, the U.S. Postal Service in 1959 uh, to support that. There's also a body of empirical evidence as well. I mentioned Pinker, but there's even much more than that. It shows that countries that trade tend, tend not to fight. Okay, tell us if, uh, in your opini opinion, women are smarter than men and if they make better leaders. Now, uh, <laughs> there are not a whole lot uh, of uh, uh, women uh, world leaders. Uh, there are uh, a good few, uh, but talk to us about that. Yeah, I was uh, just talking to a group of men the other day and I said the same thing, that women are smarter. I mean, you guys are clearly smarter than men because you live longer. I don't know how you want to measure intelligence. I have a neighbor that's the world's expert on measuring intelligence, but uh, I think the best measure is longevity. And uh, you guys live longer. You're more, as negotiators, you're very different. You pay attention to people and uh, much less numbers. And, uh, and we see this in all our research. Uh, for example, we looked at, uh, men and women um, veterinarians and how they establish pricing. And women uh, tended to charge lower prices, but they were prices that built long-term relationships with their customers. And so from the man's point of view, oh, they're crappy. Look at they're getting lower prices, but they've developed a relationship. And women are just better at that, particularly than American men. And uh, I think we saw that, it, it, um, I talk about this in one of my other books. The other book, I'll give you a plug for it. It's uh, called And, um, that's the first title. Uh, and then the subtitle is Building Relationships Through Inventive Negotiation. And one of the stories we tell was one of the uh, previous um, debates about the uh, spending ceiling was really saved by a group of women senators getting together over pizza, both Republicans and Democrats, and deciding that uh, we really needed to raise the debt ceiling. And they as a group went into the Senate and made that happen. So that's another example of, of uh, women uh, being better leaders. I'm not saying that there aren't good men leaders, uh, but we've certainly seen our share of really bad ones particularly recently as things are going on. And it's just hard to imagine um, women behaving the same way uh, in this empire building and all that. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, tell us, uh, we talked a, a little bit about it at the beginning, but is it possible to change the culture around guns, weapons, power in America and how might one do that? 
Um, and, you know, I read uh, a brilliant article, I think it was in the National Post and um, a Canadian newspaper, um, and they talked about um, Americans always go uh, to their rights, but, uh, um, and it's not about taking away uh, uh, the guns, but about sensible uh, laws and uh, banning weapons of war. So, like, how, how can the whole narrative uh, change around that? Well, that's that's a tough question, isn't it? I mean, all this gun ownership is is really driven by uh, donations made to politicians in Washington, particularly by the NRA. And uh, what you got to do is uh, stop the the uh, money circulating through the American political system. There's so much money, billions of dollars, influencing, going toward trying to influence voters paid in by PACs, both Democrats and Republicans are guilty of this, by the way. And what's happening is voters aren't being represented. Uh, parties are being represented. And you know, if we go back to George Washington, he, he warned us about political parties. And we're seeing that played out right now um, with all the money surging through. Uh, this is also related to defense spending. Uh, and another of our greatest generals, uh, President Eisenhower warned against defense spending caused by uh, basically, he called it the military industrial complex, but some people say in earlier speeches it was the military industrial congressional complex because uh, Congress was voting for big spending uh, because the weapons makers were buying off Congress. And that's still happening, it's still happening. And I, the solution, the changing this culture of money driving the American political system is for Americans when they attend uh, political campaign events to ask sitting politicians this question. The question is, sir or madam, do donations to your campaign influence your vote? And they will lie and they will say no and they'll lie to your face. And some of them are very good about lying, but everybody knows donations influence votes. So that'll bring that topic to the fore if everybody asks their own representatives that question. Regarding guns, uh, I taught a class uh, with a colleague for three years in the MBA program at UCI. And the class was on uh, innovation processes. How do we come up with new ideas? And one of the keys I learned from um, the person I taught with who was an advertising executive, she said, it's important to get as many ideas on the table, even crazy ideas, because those crazy ideas may not prove fruitful, fruitful or they may not be the solution, but they get people thinking and talking in new ways. So here's a crazy, crazy idea about guns. When you females take over the country in this next election, why don't you pass a law and have her, the president, um, sign it that requires all uh, guns owned by civilians to be painted pink? Now, that sounds like a crazy idea, but uh, uh, if we all had pink guns, there's even a good argument. I mean, we aren't taking away guns, right? So there's no second uh, uh, Second Amendment argument, but it's also safer 
if you can see the guns, then it's safer. For example, um, that's why hunters wear brightly colored clothing. I know it's a crazy idea. I'm going to get lambasted for it, but I don't care. If it gets a discussion going about this masculinity wrapped all around gun ownership, then maybe we can make some process on that narrow topic. But to get better representation, you got to ask your politicians, your representatives, that question, that key question. Did donations to your campaign influence your votes? And see how they squirm and avoid, because they won't answer it. That's a, that's a really good one. Tell us why trade sanctions, um, why, why they work in some situations and why they don't work. They almost never work. Um, again, good empirical data on trade sanctions and their efficacy. And the best studies done by a fellow uh, by the name of Hofbauer and his colleagues show that they accomplish the stated goals, the stated political goals about 25% of the time. And that's looking at you know, the last 50 years of trade sanctions. So only 25% of the time is the stated goal accomplished. But the big problem with trade sanctions is there's, the, there's huge um, unintended consequences. Things like we sanctioned Japan before World War II by um, uh, refusing to ship them oil or, uh, um, or steel, their response is they attack us. So that's you know, a, a bad consequence. But the main thing that the trade sanctions are doing now, and you can just go down the list, we've done a study comparing, uh, looking at trade sanctions um, in China, Iran, uh, the Czech Republic, we don't have those anymore, and Cuba, and a couple of, a couple of other countries. And what trade sanctions do is they develop hate by the people toward the country that's sanctioning them. Also, political leaders in those countries um, uh, have an argument against, for example, if I take Iran, for example, they have a great argument against uh, the United States. They say they're sanctioning us and that's causing all kinds of problems in our country, the, those terrible Americans. And so they give you those arguments. They actually cause problems for the people in other countries. Um, poverty, uh, diseases, things like that. Um, so trade, trade sanctions are just a bad idea. They don't work. And it fits right in with this, uh, um, the mantra, uh, trade sanctions are a punishment and punishments don't work. They destroy relationships. Um, the silliest example right now is Cuba. Um, Obama was doing a good job rebuilding relationships in Cuba. We've been taking, at uh, the business school, Mirage Business School, we've been taking our MBA students to Cuba for about the last six or seven years to learn about the Cuban economy and to meet with Cuban students and to do business plans together. And um, that helps the Cuban economy, but it helps peace. So I had a group of students over in Havana when Obama came, and that was his speech was inspirational. Now, of course, Trump changed all that, and I'm I'm still upset with Biden because he hasn't fixed that problem. Um, I'm upset with Biden for a bunch of reasons. The thing that I particularly appreciate is, unlike Nixon, he pulled out of 
a bad military situation. Uh, he, he pulled out of Afghanistan uh, and he's been criticized for that. But, you know, 14 years of war and nothing is changing. That was time to pull out. So I appreciate that decision. But uh, he, Biden really hasn't fixed the China problem or the Cuban problem. Um, I'm uh, kind of cranky with him about that. What do you think he can do about the China problem? Well, first of all, the China problem is a manufactured problem. And now I got to go back to Nixon real quick. And I'm not sure how much time we have. Do we... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. We're, OK, we're so let me go back. To on time. Yeah, let me go back because it starts with Nixon. In 1946, Nixon ran for Congress in California. That's uh, Kennedy was running for Congress. Jack Kennedy was running for Congress in Massachusetts at the same time. They were both naval officers in World War II. Kennedy had actually experienced being shot at in his PT boat and experienced uh, uh, the ferocity of the war. He lost a brother in World War II. So back in Massachusetts, when he was walking around campaigning, he was campaigning for peace through engagement. Nixon was out in California campaigning on my Democratic opponent here in Orange County is a commie. He started the whole fear of communism as a campaign tool, and it's lasted all the way through China now in, uh, in uh, 2023. And uh, we saw this uh, big time continued in the presidential elections. Kennedy was preaching engagement again. Uh, he did uh, preach against the, uh, the Soviet Union and China, but he, Kennedy acted with, to create the Peace Corps to bolster the language um, capabilities of our ambassadors. So he really emphasized engagement, and Nixon was all about uh, building the military to fend off the coming war with the Soviet Union and the Cold War. And so this has continued all the way through, I'll go to 2020, or 19, 1999. Uh, our congressman here in Orange County, Christopher Cox, was the author of a report about Chinese espionage. It came out right before the 20, I'm sorry, the uh, the 2000 election, and it described uh, what the Chinese were doing. China was, we, at that point in time, the Cold War with Russia, and it was Russia then, was ended. And so the United States military industrial congressional complex, in order to uh, keep it going, they needed a big enemy, so they turned to China. And it's been called often the pivot to China. And uh, Bush and the Republicans in 2000 really emphasized China. Because of that, they kind of didn't pay attention uh, to the Middle East, and thus we get 9-11. Um, and uh, I really blame the Bush administration and the Republicans for that gaffe, that grievous error. Uh, but you can uh, see the criticism of China has been continued. We developed actually, well, I'll go back to Nixon in China in 72. That was really a big breakthrough. He and Kissinger's intention in those negotiations in China, when Kissinger, when Nixon visited Mao, um, 
the 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 goal is to get the Chinese to get the Vietnamese to stop fighting. Now that was a stupid goal because if they had understood history, the Vietnamese hate the Chinese. The Vietnam the Chinese have been invading Vietnam, you know, over for over a thousand years, and so there's no way that China was going to influence. Uh, the Vietnamese. What the Chinese wanted was Taiwan. And neither side got what it wanted, but the benefit of those negotiations is the trade doors opened up. And so we had this wonderful trade with China uh, beginning really in 72 and with Nixon's visit. Um, and it worked real well, uh, basically until we get Trump. And uh, Trump destroyed that relationship. And he also destroyed um, everyone's um, faith in the word of the United States, because he abrogated not just uh, the relationship, the relationship with uh, China, but the climate accords and things like that. And you know, how can you trust an American negotiator, uh, even even from the Democratic Party? Because if a Republican gets elected, they're going to change everything. So. Uh, Trump really created huge problems for our international relations. Um, and uh, like I said, I hope to see a woman in the office uh, come 2024 um, that will be interested in fixing things instead. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of babbled on there. But, um, that, that, that's all right. Thank you so much. Uh, what didn't we cover? Uh, that you would like to uh, with regards to Charlotte's War? And also, how can people find you? Okay, so let me back up for one second. I want to do another plug. Um, at, the, at our business school, the Mirage Business School, we publish what we call the US-China Barometer. We've been tracking the relationship between the two countries um, for the last 10 years and publishing it on our website. You can Google US-China Barometer um, and Mirage. Mirage is the name of our business school. Mm -hmm. or my name will get, get you there. And we look at the relationship on about 30 different dimensions. Uh, and we dispel the notion um, that uh, the Chinese are stealing our jobs. On intellectual property, the Chinese have been improving the whole time. You can look at the numbers. We also wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review saying these same things, that the China relationship was working out great and China was changing. They're becoming a, a better business partner over time. Um, all that is, uh, and you can, the most recent we published in uh, 2022. So if folks want to take a look at, uh, at a data-based discussion of the relationship with China rather than the political dis discussion that's going on in the newspapers, even, even in the best newspapers, I think that's a better place to look. So the relationship is pretty good. How can you get a hold of me? My web, uh, I'm sorry, Charlotte's War is now available on Amazon and in the bookstores. And uh, it's Charlotte's, Charlotte's War, because it's fiction, I use uh, a pen name. I use my middle name, Lawrence Graham. But just type in Charlotte's War Graham and you'll get to it. Um, the book is mostly history with uh, this fictional family going through that history, beginning in uh, 1938 and going to 1972. But the history is pretty much uh, as accurate as I can make it. The fun I had in, in doing the research for it 
as I was reading the best history books on the topic of Vietnam and Kissinger and those folks, I kept running into discrepancies. But of course, that's the way histories work. But uh, you can trust the history as it's described. And uh, anytime you're, uh, there's a fictional character, Charlotte, or a son involved, uh, that, that's fiction. But we try to put in some of the humanness of the family going through the three wars and how they dealt with that um, with grief and humor and even romance. Um, you get a little bit deeper understanding of what was going on. Uh, my email is jgram at uci.edu. That's jgram at uci.edu. Send me a note. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, also, our, our book website is grahamsbooks.com, uh, and that uh, describes the other books that you mentioned at the very beginning, but they go into some detail. The most important one there is called inventive negotiation. We're trying to change particularly how American men negotiate because they kind of don't know what they're doing. American women are better negotiators, as I mentioned. So you guys out there, you got to take a look at it. Thank you so much, uh, John, for uh, sharing your time and experience with us. And I'm going to put up uh, some of uh, that information for people uh, to contact you. And also, uh, I will encourage people who disagree with you to contact you and engage in dialogue, because I think a lot of good can happen uh, out of that. So thank you. Yeah, I can't wait to hear the responses about pink guns. <laughs> yeah, it's so appropriate with, uh, you know, speaking about women and stereotypes, the Barbie movie coming out. But think about how important color is as an influence on behavior. And, uh, you know, anyway, it's very nice talking to you, Shaz. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, uh, and uh, I hope uh, the folks on Wall Street take a look at this and get some ideas for doing things a little bit differently too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wall Street Bulls and Bears Main Street Hopes and Fears podcast. We hope you tune in again next week.